Pastor Xavier Reese and the power of the cross. The open display of victory was portrayed to all as Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead three days afterwards. And he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14 tells us. The victory's been won, past tense. I'm not looking forward to the victory, I'm looking back towards the victory. It's already done. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. What's the root cause of sin? Is it the environment we're in, or does it have more to do with our upbringing? Today, Pastor Xavier digs deep into the book of Isaiah as he helps reveal the depth of sin and God's solution for obedience. That's coming up in today's Bible study, The Conquering King. Let's listen. The usual picture that people have of God is one of a loving and merciful God who would not send people to hell or hold them accountable for their sins. The unbelief of any person does not nullify the fact that God has judged and will judge again. And Isaiah gives us a picture of the Lord's coming as a conquering warrior in this passage of Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, marked by these three important details. First, in verse 1, the identity of the warrior. Who is this one who comes from Edom? Now, you know that Edom was the dwelling of the descendants of Esau. Now, Edom, as you know, means red. And we get this back in Genesis 25, 30, where Esau is introduced to us, and he becomes the enemy of God. Now, here again, we get the description of this location, but also of the idea of the color red. Uh, he says, with dyed garments from Bozra, which suggests a gathering of grapes. It was the capital of Eden, the perpetual enemies of God. The prophet describes him by his dress. This one who is glorious in his apparel. His dress is depicted as a conquering warrior. And by the way, as we're going to see, he's not coming to fight in this point. He's through with the fight. It's done. He's a conquering warrior. His enemies were no match for him. He conquered over them. Remember that the key phrase, one of the key phrases of Isaiah is what? The Lord of hosts. We've seen this over and over and over again. What does it mean? The captain of the armies of heaven. This is the warrior. He has fought. He has won the whole victory and salvation already. It's something past. Notice the basis on which he is able to save Israel is the blood that he shed on the cross in his first coming. The forgiveness of sins, the salvation of man is based on his first coming. The second coming is for vengeance, as we'll see. This is the identity of the warrior. Notice secondly, in verse two and three, the indisputable victory of the warrior. The indisputable victory of the warrior. First in verse two, the evidence of the victory was an open display. The inquiry as to the condition of his clothes why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads in the winepress? You're familiar with the practice of trampling the graves to extract the Jews barefooted? 
and it resulted with the clothes being stained. This is the first image that comes to the one looking. He's seen him come from Basra. He's coming from there, and he's looking. He's getting closer, and it's becoming more clear. His apparel was stained. His garment was stained, but he's victorious. Notice secondly in verse 3 still, the declaration of the victory was announced. He alone accomplished the task. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. No one will help God. God doesn't need any help. He alone can judge unto perfection, as John 5, 27 and 30 says. All judgment has been given to the Son. The explanation for his victorious appearance was described. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Notice that it is in the past tense as an accomplished fact, even though it is still future, the prophetic perfect. We've seen this through Isaiah often. So this, though it hasn't happened, this is 700 before Christ even comes, it's done. It's a done deal. We saw that in Isaiah 53. The lamb has been slain. A done deal. Your sins have been forgiven. You haven't even been born. Amazing. The anger and fury of God is to be understood in the context of his person. Who is he? What's the repeated phrase throughout Isaiah? The Holy One of Israel. Don't forget that. The phrase is sharp contrast to the nation who is separated by God because of their sin. As Isaiah 59.1 has told us, his ears not deaf or his hands short that he cannot save, but your sins are separated between you and God. For the first time when he sees the vision of God in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of a dirty mouth, unclean lips. And when he saw himself before God, he saw himself consumed. This is the proper comparison. Too many people compare themselves by themselves, among themselves, so they end up being stupid, unwise, as Paul says. But the problem is that many in the church today are doing that. Listen, people, when you go in the morning to look in the mirror, you get a real picture of who you are. And you fix it. <laughs> now, this is what's happening in the church today. People don't look in the mirror, the Word of God. It's like you going in the morning and putting your picture in the wall and looking at it as if it's the mirror. Say, oh, it's okay. You're looking at yourself as who you thought you were or who you were in the past. Look into the mirror of the Word. It'll show you who you are. And if you can't make adjustments, either you're blind <laughs> or you're self-deceived, one of the two. Trust me, you will not have to look very hard to find something to fix. The open display of victory was portrayed to all as Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead three days afterwards. And he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14 tells us. The victory's been won, past tense. I'm not looking forward to the victory. I'm looking back towards the victory. It's already done. You need to understand that, and so do I. This is the indisputable victory of the warrior that we're looking at. He's not coming to fight. He has just got through winning the battle as Isaiah presents him here, coming to set up his kingdom. Now notice thirdly, in last year, verse 4 through 6, 
the inescapable day of the warrior. The inescapable day of the warrior. It will happen. First in verse 4, the day is the one that has been close to his heart. Mark that well in the verse. The day is the one that has been close to his heart. The day of vengeance in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. The day of vengeance marks the end of the day of man and the time of the Gentiles, the end of the great tribulation here. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ to set up the kingdom, as Isaiah has told us over and over and over again. Psalm 2 declares how they will be gathered there in the battle of Armageddon, ready to destroy, to oppose him, but Jesus will, coming down from the skies, will laugh at them and have them in derision. Wow. So you want a preview? Look at Psalm 2. You want a little greater clip? Go to Revelation 19. <laughs> that whole battle is described there. We don't have time for it this morning. The day is the climax to the major theme of the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. Amos, Joel, Habakkuk, Hosea, all of them speak about Jeremiah, Isaiah. The day of the Lord. Now notice the year. It's the year of my redeemed. It marks the day of Israel's salvation. This is who he's directing himself to. In the context, Israel, the year represents the end of the 70th week of Daniel. The last ruling empire of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The ten toes mixed with iron and clay. Daniel 2, Daniel 7. Daniel 9, 27 is the 70th week. It's the end of it. The year marks the beginning of the redemption of all who are truly Israel. The Israel of God. Even as Paul tells us in the scriptures and others that all of Israel will be saved who are truly Israel. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Zechariah 12, 10 through 12 tells us that. And they will say, where did you receive these wounds? He'll say, I received them in the house of my friends. Zechariah says he will step on the Mount of Olives. It'll cleave in half. He will come. And all who are truly Israel will be saved. And not just because they are born in Israel, not because they have Jewish background, are they truly Israel. Just like not all of us are going to be in heaven. Think about that. Have you ever thought about that? Pretty heavy. Because Jesus taught us that there's wheat among chaff. There are people who walk away from God. Are you walking with God? Are you looking at that mirror or are you looking at a picture of yourself, a photo, and you say, ah, I'm okay? The day marks the end of salvation history as we know it prior to the kingdom. Now notice secondly in verse 5. The day is the one that all will see the Savior of the world. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation to me. No one could help by virtue of their own sinfulness to save mankind. No one can do it. There have been many heroic men who have died in war. Many heroic policemen who have laid down their life in civil duty. But none of them have ever changed the course of history for any sinner. Because they are sinners themselves. It is he, Christ, he alone who has accomplished this. No one else. No one could justify man before God. No one could justify himself before God. No one could uphold the standard of salvation because this is the context here. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. There is none to seek God, Romans 3.11. And how often you and I hear people say, oh, I love God, I seek God all the time. And they're out there doing their thing. No one seeks God. 
We seek our God in our own image, one who's merely love and doesn't want to bother with my sin because he understands how good I am. Listen, you better get a clear picture of who God is in the scriptures. And whether you believe it or not, it doesn't make any difference. He's still God. And he hates sin. And he's coming to judge it. So my unbelief is not going to change that at all. But my belief will help me to flee the wrath to come. No other conclusion was possible. Look at that. His own arm brought salvation for him. For him. His arm speaks of his power to accomplish the work of salvation. His motive was for himself, for me, not for anyone else. God didn't save us because we are so good. God saved us for himself, for him. He saved me for him, for his purpose, for his glory, for his workmanship. I am his creature. He's the creator. We have been the recipients of his grace for his glory. He's already told us, as we saw in chapter 59, verse 16 and 18, that he saw no intercessor, he interceded himself, he put on the breastplate of righteousness, and he went to battle, and he made salvation possible. No one else could do that. Now notice thirdly, there in the end of verse 5 and verse 6. The day is the one that reveals the righteous, listen, judge of mankind. So it's just not some cantankerous fit that he's throwing and wiping people out. Have you, have you seen that commercial lately where they show kids dropping vases and, and, and throwing plants over and throwing them pillows and everything like that and just spoiled brats of today throwing their fit and then they appease them, I forget what it is, with some kind of TV thing or something? Communicating to parents, you know, give your kids what they want and entertain them. God isn't like that. God isn't going around, how you like that? He isn't going around just doing his thing. He isn't going around because he's just throwing a fin. This is talking about righteous judgment. No violation of God's holiness occurs here. His own fury, notice it says, sustained him, the end of verse 5. Now, when someone vents himself, He's gratifying his own fury and he feels a little better. He doesn't care whose head he takes off. When it says here that his own fury sustained him, it is righteous fury. It is exactly what is deserved. No mistake. His fury fits the action he took against man. His fury poured out, sustained him, for he hates evil. Listen, with perfect hatred. I don't hate sin with perfect hatred. Now, I hate sin. But I'm still sinful, so I'm still imperfect. But God hates sin and evil with perfect hatred. No injustice was carried out, but true and ultimate justice as he trodden down the people, listen, in his anger. They positioned themselves as the enemies of God through their own decision. People do this every time they hear the gospel. People make this decision every day. They posture themselves as those who oppose the setting up of the kingdom. What is your position? What is your posture against 
or for the kingdom of God. It's a decision you make. No one can make it for you. No second opportunity notice was available. He made them drink in his fury. Isaiah and others tell us about drinking the cup of God's wrath. He's told us in chapter 51, 17, Psalm 75, 8, uh, Jeremiah 25, 15. You look to the book of Revelation 14, chapter 19, over and over again. A vivid picture of drinking of the cup of God's wrath. Not some venting of his own anger, but the due to the individuals. Due means that you've worked for it. Do means you have made a decision to pursue this, and this is what you get in return. It is righteous. No one will be able to stop him as he brings down, notice, their strength on the earth. This is the bottom line. Devastating all human power and authority. Right now, man thinks he's the greatest. It would be like you going in your backyard and you stand over a little anthill. And you're looking down there, and there's a whole bunch of ants. But, you know, they're, they're not that big. And one of them looks at you and goes, you're not going to get in here. And all you have to do is go, boom. Here is man waving his fist at God and saying, you're not going to set up your kingdom. And you know what? He's serious. That's the sad part about it. Because he has come to a place where he thinks he is God. Demoralizing his pride. Debasing him. Dethroning Satan and binding him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Declaring the kingdom has come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's here. What is this? Nothing but the day of the Lord, which Amos, Hosea, Habakkuk, and many of them speak about. It's here. Now, the day of God doesn't happen until after the thousand years. When 2 Peter 3, 12 says everything will melt with fervent heat, that's after the thousand years. This speaks of Jesus coming to set up the kingdom, to marry the wife. And then we're here for a thousand years in the honeymoon as kings and priests to reign with him. You remember the Assyrian king, Sennacherib? He sent a letter to Hezekiah. We touched on it there in chapter 37 and 36. And he was boasting how none of the gods of the nations had stopped him from being victorious over them. And he started boasting over Jehovah. And so Hezekiah laid the letter before the Lord in the temple. And the Lord said, that's not good. Now he's challenging me. Watch out, Hezekiah. And he sent one angel, the angel of the Lord. And he wiped 250,000 Assyrians in one night. Do you see what God has done consistently in the past for those who oppose him? And who say that they are independent from him? They're gone. God is still here. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, we read phrases like this. Listen. Thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. The Lord said, right. The spirit of the Lord came upon me. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Do you believe that this Bible is the inerrant, infallible, absolute authority word for your life and practice and faith? If you don't, you're in trouble. 
Because what you're doing is you're standing against God. You're talking about every word, everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many times does God have to say that he's God for you to believe it? Or that he means what he says and he says what he means. But how easy it is to rationalize God's commands and God's warnings away. And abuse grace. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Perish the thought. How should we who are dead to sin live any longer? Their impulse says. The day of the Lord's coming is a day close to his heart when he will be wed to his wife, Israel. You ever remember a day you prepared for, you couldn't wait, you marked down the days, you had a calendar, mark them all down? God, God can't wait for this day. You know why? Because he's going to put an end to the whole thing. No one's more anxious to come than he, but he'll be right on time. Listen to Revelation twenty two twelve. And behold, I am, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Twenty two twenty. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. He cannot lie. He's coming. The day of the Lord's coming will manifest him as Savior of the world, the title given to him in Samaria in John 4, 42. He's the Savior of the world. Most people in the world today do not believe that he's the Savior of the world. And many others in the church are living like he's not. They say he is, but they're living like he's not. And that's what matters. Not what you and I say, but what I do. And if you don't believe me, you better read James, the Lord's brother. <laughs> the day of the Lord's coming will reveal how much he objects and hates evil. Listen to Paul in Romans 1.32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The whole catalog of sinfulness. Listen, when I got born again in 73, I got born again. And I was a pagan and I was in the world. And there was a drastic change in my life, and I demand constant change in my life. I am not perfect. Just hang out with me for five minutes. You'll find out. But let me tell you, I am pressing towards the mark. I have ran too long, too far, and I've got too many scars as a warrior to give them now. There's nothing worth giving it up for. Nothing at all. Nothing worth it. Make the distinction between Israel and the bride of Christ, the church, but know also that sin is a hindrance to both the wife and the bride. Know that very, very clear. This is the inescapable day of the warrior. Ezekiel says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as God speaks through Ezekiel. Turn, turn and live. Why would you die? This is the inescapable day of the warrior. It will come. And so the picture of the Lord's coming by Isaiah as he comes to the close of his book. Do you see how fitly it, it, it fits in the whole book as we've looked at it? He began with the plead. He's closing with the judgment. He's warning again. He says, I'm coming. 
the identity of the warrior, the indisputable victory of the warrior, and the inescapable day of the warrior. Meditate on them. They're true. Pastor Xavier Reese and the Conquering King, encouraging hope from the Word of God. Well, today's message is available for only $4, and we can send you a copy on CD. And this will also include what Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together. So once again, the title to ask for is The Conquering King, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please be sure and include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This information is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. What's the secret to a successful Christian life? Find out when you join Pastor Xavier Reese here on the next edition of Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 